Alright all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast, with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 76 of the SLS cast. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to go patriotic on y'all bitches this week. We're going and we'll go with the United States Bicentennial episode of the SLS cast. Why? Because, of course, 1776 to 1976, it's the Bicentennial. And, uh, coincidentally, a year before I was born. Not that anybody knows or cares, but just thought I would share. And uh, on that note, I, of course, am Matt. And I am Tim, the now uh, unswollen and able to move my jaw up and down Tim. Yes, and belated birthday greetings, at least show-wise, because, you know, I mean, I texted you on your birthday and all that shit, but yeah, how was the birthday? It was good. It was good. I I woke up in the morning, uh, which I do every morning, and I went went out for breakfast, which is something I I never really do. You went to breakfast? You know, breakfast, that reminds me of something. That reminds You know, I sent you you something that uh, you, you you should go ahead and do that now. Because you, there, I sent you a link, and you you should click that on the breakfast note. I think this would okay. be a good time for you to go ahead and click the link. What Tim doesn't know is that we have secretly sent him a link featuring the new movie Eat, the story of a girl who finds herself and then eats herself. Let's listen as he watches the trailer. Enjoying yourself yet, Tim? Pretty people pictures. <laughs> Ooh, wow. I... Mmm, yummy, right? <laughs> uh, ooh. So there's dancing, there's partying, there's sex, there's mm-hmm. also eating. I like how she's yeah. eating a tomato. Or is mm-hmm. it a tomato? I don't... You must watch the movie to find out. Some falling paper. Uh, uh oh. Yes. It's awesome stuff. So the premise of this movie is what I mean. What you told me before is that <laughs> she she discovers herself and decides to eat herself. Yet she she is not a large a large woman at all. I mean, I was expecting her to be a large woman to where if she ate a bit of herself every once in a while, she might not actually notice. That she's eating herself. Right. Well, I think this is a pretty succinct way to say it. I like the little blurb they have here. It says, and this is from eatthemovie.com, which doesn't sound like, it sounds like it's a it's a command, right? It's telling you to eat the movie. But no, it's, it's eat the movie, right? Okay. And it says here that Novella McClure is most is like most struggling actresses in Los Angeles. She's in her early 30s, her fake name sounded cooler 10 years ago, and she hasn't landed a role in three years. To top it all off, she's developed a disturbing habit of eating her own flesh. Novella desperately tries to hide her strange condition from her motherly landlord, Yesha, <laughs> and somewhat psychopathic best friend, Candace. But her body and mind continue to deteriorate in the depressing world of failed auditions and sketchy nightclubs. Can a romantic relationship with her psychiatrist prevent her from self-destruction? Or will her fatal habit continue 
to eat away at her. You know, I kind of wish that more people in Hollywood would eat themselves. <laughs> they owe it to themselves to do that. They're full of themselves, yeah. so why don't they literally be full of themselves? I'm telling you, they bring a whole new uh, meaning to, you know, cutting off your nose despite your face. Yeah. I found this movie, though, uh, and wanted to let you see it because I was browsing Reddit, and this wonderful little Reddit user by the name of Funstorm1 submitted oh, yeah. a I know Funstorm. worst films, yeah, worst films on sale at Cannes 2014. And among them, of course, eat Zombies, which is like uncaged undead is the tagline and i'm like so just wild animals eating people because they're not trapped in a cage at a zoo um like yeah like normal animals (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i'm not really sure where we're going with that pro wrestlers versus zombies and i mean these are some tier one wrestlers like rowdy roddy piper and kurt angle who were relevant 20 and 30 years ago or something or maybe 30 and 20 years ago respectively although probably my favorite from this list uh including ones like saving santa and a dog and pony show uh eat was definitely up there but i think my favorite one is wolf cop where the tagline is here comes the fuzz and yeah that's just kind of fun oddly enough i have seen the trailer for wolf cop and is it any good um good in what sense <laughs> like any good like it's so bad it's good or it's intentionally trying to be bad and therefore good or it's just it looks like it's going to be really funny regardless of whether or not they intended for it to be i don't i don't know i don't uh, it's intentionally uh trying to be bad that it's good or it's intentionally trying to be bad but you feel really sorry for all these people that are involved <laughs> in the movie <laughs> Nice. That's that's awesome. At any rate, though, I totally cut you off because I thought that the segue would be hilarious regarding you mentioning breakfast and then a movie about a chick that eats herself, literally. So, well, how was the rest of your birthday? Uh, Norm's was good. Got Had the breakfast, had the... Uh, the egg. I learned something about eggs at diners, is that um, they don't use powder eggs, yet they really don't use completely, you know, like, real eggs. They use something called liquid eggs, which is watered-down mm-hmm. eggs mixed mm-hmm. with butter. So if you're ever wondering, you know, my eggs kind of taste buttery, well, it's because it's mixed with butter, and that's kind of weird, and their sausages reminds me of people's fingers. Like, I've seen people's fingers that look like their sausages. <laughs> but the best meal came at the end of the day when uh, the, uh, Chelsea took me to uh, a great uh, high-class restaurant in Malibu, California, called Jeffries, or maybe it's Joff, maybe because it is more high class, it's pronounced Joffries, uh, but it overlooked the ocean, <laughs> the Pacific, and uh, I had swordfish for the first time. I gotta say, that's probably my, my new favorite fish that I have had, is swordfish. I highly recommend it. Indeed a Rooney, indeed a Rooney. Uh, so, so I guess, uh, I'm sorry, go uh, ahead. But uh, it, uh, it's like uh, is this is like the verbal version of like bumping into somebody on the street and you both keep like trying to get around each other but moving in the same direction at which point you're kind of like shall we dance? That's kind of what's happening here. Yeah, and it's kind of very awkward to really continue on talking. Thank God you're back editing because I'm sure you'll be able to fix this. <laughs> or maybe I won't. I 
fix it. Oh, that's terrible. Terrible. Okay, well, before we get to the real news, there is something moderately uh, Hollywood-related that I wanted to share with you that is news. Uh, From foxnews.com, it turns out that for sale in Transylvania, Dracula's Castle. Ooh. And... Yes, and it, and it. Uh, I like the way this article leads off. It says, "Looking to get away from it all." <laughs> <laughs> it really does. That's the yeah. You know, Dracula's castle in Transylvania has gone up for sale. Nestled in the Romanian countryside, the property is a tasty investment. And with the closest town, Brazov, some miles away, there's plenty of peace and quiet, meaning you'll be able to sleep for a thousand years. Or at least get a peaceful, lazy Sunday. And yes, this is the true home of Vlad the Impaler. And of course, where the legend of Dracula was born and everything, of course, coming from Bram Stoker and all that good stuff. The interesting thing, though, says that they want to sell to someone who will really keep the spirit of place alive but is also willing to invest in some infrastructure to it because this is a castle that has currently no toilets or bathrooms and yet the it's reportedly was the castle was reportedly offered to the romanian government for a cool 85 million dollars and i gotta say right now i don't even think if i was the richest man in the world that i would buy any facility for $85 million that did not have at least one bathroom in it. I just, I can't. Oh, I, I would. Oh, for the name. I would gladly poop in a cup if I owned Dracula's castle. I don't know. I might have to talk him down a million dollars and what? be like, go build me like a fantastic bathroom and then I'll come back and buy it. I want the, I want the most gothic outhouse there is <laughs> a castle in its own right <laughs> located next door <laughs> to the transylvania castle is dracula's bathroom <laughs> <sighs> yeah all right here we go folks it's the real one here the news <laughs> The news. All right, we're going to start off with a little bit of sadness in our in our world. Uh, from the ibtimes.co.uk website, which is International Business Times, courtesy of Ben Skipper, alien creator H.R. Geiger dies aged 74. Swiss artist's biomechanical works inspired the xenomorphs, an entire alien franchise. Yes, the celebrated artist was best known for inspiring and working on the designs of Sir Ridley Scott's sci-fi horror masterpiece Alien, for which he won a visual effects Oscar in 1980. And he was it's he's led an extremely fascinating life. He was actually the son of a chemist who moved to Zurich and he studied architecture and in and uh in industrial design he, and then went into art and he yeah C- 
create he ended up getting in touch with the right people and worked with Ridley Scott and helped make the template for what would become Alien that we all have come to know and love from the Alien franchise and the Xenomorph and the whole nine things and it's just kind of sad he 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 wasn't really involved in movies too much outside of that however uh, he was very active in creating additional artistry that was also just as creepy as the Xenomorphs themselves. So, R.I.P. H.R. Geiger. R.I.P. Another passing, actually. Uh, the man who shot the Godfather trilogy, Gordon Willis, passed away at the age of 82. Other than the Godfather trilogy, he served as the cinematographer on Woody Allen classics, many of them, such as Annie Hall, Manhattan, Broadway Danny Rose, and Zelig. Uh, According to this HollywoodReporter.com article about Amir, uh, they say that, quote, he was called the Prince of Darkness by fellow cinematographer Conrad Hall for his daring use of as little light as possible. Willis received Academy Award nominations for Zelig and The Godfather Part Three, and earned the ASC's Lifetime Achievement Award in 1995. In 2009, he was given an honorary Oscar for unsurpassed mastery of light, shadow, color, and motion. If there were a Mount Rushmore for cinematographers, Gordon's features would surely be chiseled into The Rock's face said Stephen Pizzello, the editor-in-chief and publisher of American Cinematographer Magazine, who was collaborating on a book with Willis. In quotes. Gordon Willis here, 82 years old, passed away. He will be missed. He was a fantastic cinematographer. And uh, it's sad sad news for the movie world with uh, with these guys' passing. I must agree, sir. I must agree. All right, well, I have got some spin-off and sequel news here that might interest some people. And conveniently, all coming from Variety.com. So, you know, guess I must have been lazy. All right, first one up. Well, like I said, they're all from Variety.com. This one is courtesy of Dave McNary. Harry Potter's spin-off, Fantastic Beasts, to hit theaters November 18th, 2016. And, of course, this is from Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers has dated J.K. Rowling's first installment in the Harry Potter spinoff trilogy, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, for November 18th, 2016. Fantastic Beasts becomes the first title to land on the date five days before Disney opens an untitled animated film. The studio has not yet set a producer, director, or actors on Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, which was first announced in September. Which means... Come 2016, we could just be looking at an hour and 60, an hour and 45 minutes or whatever of just white screen because they, they're just, you know, throwing movies willy nilly against the wall here. And I guess we'll find out what's going to stick. Then, again, from Variety.com, courtesy of Laura Prudham, Channing Tatum confirmed as Gambit in X Men spinoff movie. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Channing Tatum is officially set to play Gambit in an upcoming X-Men spinoff movie. Sources confirm producer Lauren Schuler Donner spoke about the character at the X-Men Days of Future Past premiere in London. He's a rogue, quote, I'm sorry, let me phrase that again. Quote, he's a rogue, Channing. He's a rascal, just like Remy LeBeau. And he can handle the action, we all know that. And he's got a really good heart. I think he'll be great for Gambit, end quote. 
Tatum is following in the footsteps of Hugh Jackman, who has headlined two standalone Wolverine spinoffs, with a third currently set for release in 2017. The critically derided X-Men Origins Wolverine, which, failed, which featured Taylor Kitsch as Gambit, grossed $373 million worldwide, while 2013's The Wolverine drew approximately $415 million and fared better among pundits. Yay! And it does help, I guess, that Tatum had previously expressed interest in the role. So I guess there is that. And finally... Of course, this one, again, Variety.com, courtesy of, again, hey, look, Dave McNary, poking his head back out there. Harrison Ford offered role in Blade Runner sequel. Alcon Entertainment has an offer out to Harrison Ford to reprise his role as Rick Deckard in its sequel to Blade Runner to be directed by the original's helmer, Ridley Scott. Alcon has been working on the project for over three years since announcing in early 2011 that it had secured film, TV, and ancillary franchise rights to produce prequels and sequels. I gotta say, this is really kind of weird because it's a public offer. They're just like, hey, Harrison, come on back. And I would think that if this had been in 2011, that Harrison Ford would have said no. But as he has said yes to, to coming back for Star Wars, and he's totally down, and part of the condition of the deal was to try and get something in the works for Indiana Jones. I'm convinced he's been told he's going to die or something, and so he's just going to take all the roles that have made him popular <laughs> over the years, and he's just coming back. I, I fully anticipate a sequel. I, I see the sequel Air Force Two coming. I'm not sure when. Air Force uh, probably 2? Have, yes, Air Force 2. Um, <laughs> it will be you'll Air probably Force get with 1, Gary 2? Oldman because maybe Gary Oldman didn't quite, you know, maybe he had a parachute hidden on him at the back there. And, uh, yeah, you know, get off my plane, and right? Um, that actually sounded pretty close. That, that sounded pretty good. <laughs> Thanks. And they, they – and, and uh, I mean – because you can't call it Air Force One Part Two, you just have to, you know, keep going. It's Air Force Two. We could just say that he was, um, because you can only be president twice, right? And it doesn't matter if your terms are separate. You can become the president again. So he w- could have been a one-term president and then was brought back as a vice president, and now he's flying on Air Force Two because that's what the vice president's plane is called, is Air Force Two. And then something happens, and maybe he has to reascend to the presidency or something like that, or you know, or maybe he's just a dignitary flying on the vice president's plane, and it gets taken over, and it's like the brother or the cousin or maybe the son of the terrorist that Gary Oldman played, and he's pissed off because Harrison Ford, you know, get off my plane, and right, and and not, right? And that's the movie. So We gotta go to Cannes, man, and go pitch this movie. So it's kind because of like by the God, if Die Eat, Hard, <laughs> if but Eat, on a plane. Yeah, I don't care. If Eat <laughs> can get made, and fucking Wolf Cop can get made, we can get Air Force 2 made, goddammit. We can do it. I'm down. All right. And that took way the fuck too much time. Go ahead. <laughs> From a CinemaBlend.com article entitled, Canadian Movie Chain Looking to Start Charging Extra for Middle Seats. It's an article written by Eric Eisenberg from May the 15th of this year. 
And it says, quote, According to the Toronto Star, the theater chain company Cinemaplex is now planning to experiment with charging extra money for good seats in their theaters. For now, the idea is being limited to the theater located in Toronto's Manulife Center, but the idea is that moviegoers will have to pay two to three extra bucks if they want tickets to sit in the middle rows of the theater. In an official statement, Cineplex spokesperson Pat Marshall explained the idea noting that patrons didn't mind spending extra money on other premium offers the company has given in the past. Some examples include what are called Ultra AVX screens, movies shown in theaters with larger than normal screens with advanced sound systems. On a side note, isn't that what IMAX was supposed to be? Anyways, and VIP Cinema, which gives customers access to a private box office, in-seat concessions, and more. There is a 3 to $5 surcharge for the Ultra AVX, and VIP Cinemas are 7 to $12 extra. End quotes. What do you think about that, Matt? <laughs> um, the AVX thing... I can I kind of get the idea. Uh, I, I think that, that you want the best seats, and and they're trying to offer the premium section, so to speak, in this premium style of a cinema, and so th- that you know that this should become coveted. I kind of I get where they're coming from. I don't know that it's going to be very successful because, quite frankly, I don't think that. Even for a purist like me who enjoys having the ability to reserve seats at my Santico Cinema and sit in the middle where I want and because I ordered them first, I really don't think that it's going to be worth an extra five bucks or whatever just so that I can go and sit, oh, look, I'm, I'm three seats away from the best seats that I could have paid $5 more for. Is my experience that much diminished? Nah. So I don't know. I, I can I can kind of appreciate, especially from a business standpoint, where they're coming from. I just think it's a little. I don't. I don't see it taking off really. Now, this private concession thing. I think they're just trying a little too hard. I. I don't know. I would probably try it for the novelty. Like I would. Okay, let's let's try it. And but I just don't even even for seven bucks, even for twelve bucks. Let's say now instead of my fifteen dollar ticket. I'm going to pay $30 for a ticket. So I'm just going to double it. We're playing extra fit. I really don't know how much better it's going to be for me. Do, uh, do I, you know, what are they going to do? Are they going to maybe give me a glass for my Coke instead of <laughs> a, a, a cup? Um, perhaps I get a souvenir straw? Uh, you know, the, are they going to, maybe they'll have, ooh, maybe they'll, maybe they'll let me, have all the nachos I want at a nacho bar instead of just cheese and some jalapenos. Yeah. I, I, you see, I think they're just... I really don't see where they can go with this. Especially... Uh, yeah, so, I don't know. See, my, my deal with it is that I think that every movie theater should be the fucking same. Uh, other than if you go and see a an IMAX movie. Okay? I That's a different experience. But if you're going to a regular theater, I understand that you know, some theaters have smaller screens, other theaters have bigger screens, that's cool, but it should cost the same amount of money within that same Cinemaplex. 
you know, per screen, depending on the day and all that, I, you know, past 6 p.m., there's, you pay more and all that stuff. But it should all cost the same. No matter where you sit, no matter what kind of theater, what kind of uh, screen or sound you're getting, other than IMAX, you should, every movie theater should have the same sound. Because what happens when you start looking at this Ultra V uh, AVX or the, like, out, out here, and I'm sure in, in Houston, uh, you guys, do you guys have, like, the Dolby Atmos? You can choose to spend three or four extra bucks on a Dolby Atmos movie theater experience where where I think if, if theaters start, if every theater has that, they're going to start neglecting the cheaper theaters that are, you know, seven bucks to go see a movie, you know, and, and like the, the screens and this is all within like the same movie theater. And so like, for example, when I went to the AMC over in Burbank and I'm gladly, we'll gladly call them out on this again. I don't pay the extra money to go see a movie in Dolby Atmos. If I want to pay the extra money to see a movie on a bigger screen and with better sound, I'll pay the money to go see it in IMAX. I, it, it, of course, yeah. And then, like, I go and see when I went and saw the Budapest Hotel. I saw it on a, on the smaller screen, probably the smallest screen that they have there, and every single seat. And that theater sucks. And the sound isn't that good. When I went and saw Muppets Most Wanted there, the sound was horrific. The projection was horrific. And so that I, it, it just kind of ticks me off, you know, reading this stuff because it's like they're so worried about, oh, people paying extra money for a better experience when everybody should have the same fucking experience at the movie theater. Other than if you're seeing IMAX, other than if you're seeing 3D, of course, that's where you're going to have the upcharge. So, that's where I stand on that. I I guess the only thing I would have to say to that uh, in a rebuttal, I guess, is that I think as long as... I guess I could could be convinced to do it on a um, middle ground, so to speak. Whereas we are willing to pay... For 3D, right? You're paying an upcharge for 3D, and you're willing to pay for an upcharge for IMAX because it's a bigger, it's a different style of experience, bigger screen, different sound. However, the entire theater, that particular theater, not the whole, the individual theater in which the movie, the film is being shown, everybody pays that same price. So, I would be fine with that, I guess, versus paying extra to go and see a movie in IMAX and then instead having to pay more to go and just sit in a few select seats. Okay, very cool. All right, well, here we go. I've got some news from the Cannes Film Festival or the Cannes or the Cannes or the Cannes or the Cannes because once again, we meant to do this last year and we didn't get the definitive answer and now here we are and the Cannes and the Cannes is fucking over again and we forgot to get the definitive answer. Well, guess what? I'm just going with Cannes. First up, from movies.msn.com, can Grace of Monaco ripped apart by critics as Harvey Weinstein misses premiere? Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is courtesy of Jordan Zakarin from The Rap. Harvey Weinstein missed the Cannes premiere of Grace of Monaco on Wednesday, and given the reviews of the film, he's probably glad that he did. The mega-producer, who was absent on Wednesday due to a long-scheduled trip to visit refugee camps in Syria, don't 
Okay. Uh, was rumored to want a breezier cut of Oliver DeHaan's film, which features Nicole Kidman as Grace Kelly. And, of course, this is all going back to what Tim has already spoken about. However, it finally premiered. And here's how, um, here's how it came out. Uh, whichever cut won out, was greeted rudely by critics in France who largely tore apart the movie. Writing for The Guardian, Peter Bradshaw spares no fire in his attack on the movie, calling it, quote, so awe-inspiringly wooden that it is basically a fire risk, end quote. That is probably one of the best quotes I've ever heard for a negative movie review. In the opening paragraph alone, he adds, quote, The cringe factor is so ionospherically high. <laughs> a fleet of ambulances may have to be stationed outside the Palais to take tuxed audiences to hospital afterwards to have their toes uncurled under general anesthetic. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> wow. <laughs> And that's not and, and as if Nicole Kidman wasn't having a bad time with it. Ryan Reynolds, oh this poor bastard. Ah, from Philly.com, courtesy of the WENN news desk. Ryan Reynolds film booed at Cannes. Yes, Ryan Reynolds' new film, The Captive, has been savaged by critics following its premiere at the Cannes International Film Festival in France over the weekend. The psychological thriller, co-written and directed by Oscar-nominated filmmaker Atom Agoyan, stars Reynolds as a distraught father searching desperately... I'm sorry, excuse me... Stars Reynolds as a distraught father searching desperately for his young daughter eight years after she is abducted from his truck. The movie was screened in competition on Friday, but attendees at the prestigious film festival were not impressed by the offering and booed the picture at the end of the premiere. Reviews of The Captive uh, reflected the negative reception of the film, with Variety's Justin Chang branding it a, quote, ludicrous abduction thriller that finds a once-great filmmaker slipping into previously unentered realms of self-parody, end quote. Oh, wait, here's our favorite guy. The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw also lambasted the project as, quote, another one-star turkey, appalling acting. Ah, <laughs> uh, And concluding, quote, sadly, Agoyan's film is simply a tangled and conceited mess. End quote. The Los Angeles Times reviewer Stephen Zeitchik echoed those sentiments in an article titled Atom Egoyan's The Captive Performs a Self-Abduction, claiming the, quote, wild plots and conspiracies wouldn't be out of place in the most fantastical spy novel, end quote. Scariest part? Egoyan has at least received some good news. Shortly before the premiere, he learned the film had been picked up by bosses at U.S. distributor A24 for release later this year. Some more news... From the Cannes, or I'll just say Cannes Film Festival. The Expendables 3 updated news from Sly Stallone himself. Uh, This is from uh, from CinemaBlend.com. Sly and the massive The Expendables 3 cast descended upon Cannes with a raucous attitude, revving up onto the famous red carpet in a tank. It was there where Stallone dropped this bomb on the fans. We want to reach as many people as possible. 
It's very close to an R, believe me, it's right there. But I think we owe it to the next generation. We thought we'd join that club for a while, end all quotes. And that is what you are suspecting. The Expendables 3 will be rated PG-13, where the uh, the previous Expendables films were both rated R. So, I, you know, that it could be a good thing, it could be a bad thing. I mean, there wasn't much language in the first two movies. It was just a lot of blood and over, you know, very, very violent. But uh, maybe this time around they'll focus more and do more character stuff? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It'll, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting. And then my last piece of news, also from movies.msn.com, courtesy of Sam Hananel. With the Associated Press, court allows Raging Bull lawsuit to go forward. The Supreme Court ruled Monday that a copyright dispute over the 1980 Oscar-winning movie Raging Bull can go another round in court. The justices said in a 6-3 decision that Paula Petrella, daughter of the late screenwriter Frank Petrella, did not wait too long to file her lawsuit against Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer claiming an interest in the film. Petrello's father collaborated with legendary boxer Jake LaMotta on a book and two screenplays, which inspired the movie directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Robert De Niro. The elder Petrella died in 1981 with copyrights reverting to his daughter. She sued MGM in 2009, seeking royalties from continuing commercial use of the film. But a federal judge said she waited too long because she had been aware of the potential to file a lawsuit as early as 1991. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals agreed, relying on the studio's agreement with Petrella's delay of nearly two decades in bringing the case, was unreasonable. The Supreme Court reversed, giving Petrella a chance to resurrect her lawsuit. The decision is a blow to Hollywood studios, which have long relied on the legal doctrine of unreasonable delay to prevent distant relatives and estates from bringing copyright claims years or decades after movies have been released. Turns out that federal copyright law allows people to bring copyright claims within three years of an infringing act. Petrella's claim fell within that time because the studio continued to release the film on DVD and other formats for years, and every new release essentially reset the clock for copyright purposes. MGM argued that Petrella delayed filing her case on purpose in hopes of getting more money, saying she'd waited until after the 25th anniversary of the movie in 2005 to press her claim. What, what do you think? The, 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 uh, it's a really interesting thing. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alitos, uh, Sonia Sotomayor, and Elena Kagan all voted for her, whereas... Stephen uh, Breyer, Chief Justice John Roberts, and Anthony Kennedy sided with the studios. I, I don't know. I think it just depends on whatever contracts were drawn up or you know who was given what rights, if that opens it up for the studio or vice versa. So I, I, I just really don't know. Well, apparently everything here seems to be hinging on the three-year rolling copyright protection because every time that... The, the DVD was released or the Blu-ray came out or they did something with like a new book or whatever. All these things that were spent um, brings in more money. And that's what resets the clock. And that's where the court found that she was going to be okay. But it's kind of interesting because you have the groups 
in, like Motion Picture Association of America, uh, Consumer Electronics Association, DirecTV, and TiVo, they are siding with MGM. But Authors Guild, Songwriters Guild of America, they are siding with Petrella because they're saying that it's the th- rolling three-year copyright protection that's fair. Uh, it keeps the artist's interests alive and gives them incentive to create their works. So, I don't know. This one's kind of a touchy thing. The only thing that I really kind of am wary of, I mean, because I guess if I did something cool, I would want my kids to be able to take care of it. But at the same time, if I died and then 33 years later, my kids are trying to fight over what happened. I mean, I don't know. I think they might have missed the missed the boat on that. So, yeah. At any rate, that's the end of my news. That's all I got, sir. Do you have anything else or whatever? Or I do. Or? I do, but I, I I think we have reached... I think the music has, has gone away by now. <laughs> <laughs> we, have, we have killed the music. All right, folks. Well, then that's going to conclude the news, and we will go ahead and get into our second installment of Copycat Throwdown. It's... It's... it's the the copy copy cat cat throwdown throwdown that's right it's the copycat throwdown well that's right it's the copycat throwdown stop it stop it no no seriously stop it oh right like stop repeating stop repeating right oh okay i'm gonna kick your ass throwdown This time on Copycat Throwdown, we're doing Ants versus A Bug's Life. Ready, fight! Beneath our feet lies another world. Why do I have to be born a worker? In case you haven't noticed, we ants are running the show. We're the lords of the earth. A world just like our own. Okay, everybody, 6.15, time to dance. Don't you want your aphid beer? Call me crazy, but I have a thing about drinking from the caboose of another creature. Suit yourself. Z was just another face in the crowd. Until the day she came into his life. Hi. Want to dance? Absolutely. What on earth are you doing? You know, why does everybody have to dance the same way? You know, that's completely boring. It's no fun. Princess Follow, the guards are coming! You're a princess. When can I see you again? Mm, never. Bye. No, wait. Weaver, you gotta switch places with me. This is the only way I can see Princess Bala. Oh, boy. Princess Bala! Princess Bala! Hey, it's me! Right, Prince! We received word that the termite enemy has mobilized. This guy's crazy. I am proud to send you into battle. I'm I'm sorry, into battle? Now, destiny will make him a hero. One soldier did make it back. You're the guy from the bar. Worker danced with my fiance. Arrest him. Hey, wait a minute. Let go of me. And it will take him on an adventure beyond his wildest dreams. So he kills himself a hundred termites. Then bada bing, bada bip, bags himself the princess. I can't believe you tried to pass yourself off as a soldier. The trick is not to panic. And he's about to discover that the challenges of the outside world... 
are the least of his problems. I've been kidnapped by the village idiot. I know almost exactly what I'm doing. We will spare no effort to bring her back. Look out! One hand. See, help me! Will rise above it all to prove that he's one in a million. DreamWorks Pictures and PBI present... It looks like this is it. Just when I was starting to like you. Ants. Hello? From the creators of Toy Story. To infinity. And beyond! Comes an all-new motion picture event. Walt Disney Pictures presents a Pixar Animation Studios film. No! Harry, no! Don't look at the light! I can't help it. It's so beautiful. Now let me tell you how things are supposed to work. The ants pick the food. The grasshoppers eat the food. It's a bug-eat-bug world out there. Someone could get hurt. He's quite the motivational speaker, isn't he? Let's ride! <laughs> it's the same year after year. They come, they eat, they leave. That's our lot in life. It's not a lot, but it's our life. <laughs> They've got an idea. We can find bigger bugs to come here and fight. Now, why didn't I think of that? Oh, because it's suicide. What they needed was some help. <laughs> You're perfect! What they got... Popcorn! Stale popcorn! ...was a bunch of clowns. We're losing the audience! Get out there now! They'll only laugh at me. That's because you're a clown! You parasite circus bugs! Hey! I thought you were warriors! Hey, cutie! Want a holiday with a real bug? Yeah, yeah. So, being a ladybug automatically makes me a girl! Christ! She's a guy! Come on, Francis. You're making the maggots cry. <laughs> Walt Disney Pictures presents... I couldn't tell. A Pixar Animation Studios film. This was not supposed to happen. Squish him. Ah! Run for your life! An epic. I think I'm going to vent myself. Okay. Of miniature proportions. We don't serve grasshoppers. For the colony. And for oppressed bugs everywhere. Hello there, girly bug. Shoe fly, don't bother me. A Bug's Life. Coming to theaters this Thanksgiving. Hey, turn your butt off. Alright, uh, yeah. Okay, so we've got Ants. Oh, let's see here. Uh, released on October 2nd, 1998 in the States. Um, versus A Bug's Life. Released on November 25th, 1998. And they're more or less pretty darn the same movie uh, whereas one is a pixar event distributed by uh walt disney studios the other was done by dreamworks and had the huge star-studded cast including woody allen sharon stone jennifer lopez sylvester stallone dan Aykroyd, and bancroft gene hackman christopher walken and danny glover i gotta say these movies okay it's almost as if when DreamWorks was making Ants, that they forgot that this was supposed to be theoretically a family movie. This movie 
is, in my opinion, way more geared toward adults than kids. And as opposed to A Bug's Life, which still has some grown-up jokes thrown in to keep the parents interested, is definitely more family-friendly. Which I think is why it has stayed in the public's consciousness in a much more positive light for a greater length of time. Not to mention, it's Pixar. Therefore, it's also associated with Disney. And even though neither one of them really do anything with it, aside from, I guess, you, it's tough to be a bug, has Flick and a couple of the other people of the gang there at Animal Kingdom, you don't really see too much out of it. That being said, Ants is a very, very clever movie. And I thoroughly enjoyed the writing for that movie more, but there and again because it seems a little bit geared toward an older audience. And for me, I was 22 years old when this movie came out. I didn't necessarily want to see a kid's movie. And I gotta say, that's, you know, that mean, that meant a lot to me. Now, in terms of, for me, animation quality, I think hands down, A Bug's Life has it in spades over Ants. In terms of which movie I enjoyed more, this is really hard. I think that the writing and the characterization is better for Ants, but I think that the story and the execution as well as the overall animation quality is better for A Bug's Life. And I don't know. I, I really and truly don't know. I, I mean, content-wise, Ants is better. The overall grade, though, A Bug's Life is better. And I don't... Uh, I, I truly don't know which way I land on this one. This is a really tough one. I guess in a purely objective form, I've got to give the edge to A Bug's Life. But it's literally like 51-49 here. Um, there's no reason to not check out Ants. And there, and honestly, if you are in, if you are not a kid, you're probably going to enjoy the content of Ants more than A Bug's Life. Unfortunately, the overall aesthetic and quality towards a bug's life overcomes the story default because even with Pixar, you still do get some content that is meant for adults that is going to go over the kids' heads. So there's still stuff for you to enjoy there. Um, so yeah, so I'm going to give just but literally like a 51-49 margin going towards a bug's life. I don't really think there's a truly clear winner here. And I'm, I swear to God, I'm not trying to cop out. But that's where I stand. I don't know, Tim. What do you think, sir? Where, where, where do you where do you land on this? Okay, let me let me provide a little backstory here because this is a very uh, there was a lot of controversy between these two movies, and uh, this this might shed a little light of on how there are some similarities to it. Though I am personally, I do think that there are enough differences between the two to where they both are fantastic standalone movies. But, of course, you have the not segregated main character, which happens to be an ant, but the one that's that's kind of like disconnected from anybody else goes on a journey to find a better future, you know so uh but let me give you give you some backstory. 
So Jeffrey Katzenberg, he became the head of uh, motion picture division for Disney in 1984. He helped the company go from uh, being ranked last at the box office to being ranked first uh, by producing hit films, you know, really good movies such as Good Morning America, not Good Morning America, Good Morning Vietnam and Three Men and a Baby. And uh, he did all those two movies under the Touchstone Pictures label, which is owned by Disney. He also helped spearhead the creation of Disney's golden age of cinema with The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and The Lion King. And John Lasseter did stuff as well. I mean, he John Lasseter uh, is, you know, a part of the whole team behind those movies as well. He also helped with the partnership of, uh, of Disney and Pixar as well. However, after the Disney CEO, Michael a- uh, Eisner, denied Katzenberg a promotion to the second-in-command position, Katzenberg left Disney and would then go off to form DreamWorks SKG with Steven Spielberg and David Geffen. And this is what kind of what what caused the feud between John Lasseter and uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. DreamWorks SKG brought PDI on board to do the the computer animation and though PDI was used uh, they worked with Pixar animation they worked on Toy Story in Lasseter once they found out that PDI was going to DreamWorks and that their first movie with DreamWorks was going to be a ant movie Lasseter was pretty damn pissed and it said in a in a couple articles here that Lasseter is known for being a very clean man, a very clean with his language kind of guy, and this was one of the very few times he's publicly cursed Jeffrey Katzenberg. John Lasseter thinks that Katzenberg stole the idea after he told Katzenberg about the pro- about the project a year uh, beforehand, while uh, Laster was working on Toy Story there at the at the universe the Technicolor building at the Universal lot over by the Universal lot, Katzenberg was there and he would often talk to Katzenberg. And during one of their meetings, Laster was telling apparent allegedly telling Katzenberg about this a bug's life the story of a bug's life, and Katzenberg was very interested and, and he kept asking questions about it and he wanted to find out about the a bug's life release date and Lester at the time didn't think anything of it because he just thought it was an exchange between good friends, you know, telling him that, oh, this animation on Toy Story, the CGI animation is going to take off. So anybody who's animation, be prepared because, you know, this is going to be the next big thing. And according to Lassender, that's when Katzenberg went off and came up with Ants and he stole the idea and... There was this whole feud between the release date because Katzenberg said he was going to release Ants on the same day as A Bug's Life just to piss off Lassender and the people at Disney and Steve Jobs and all this stuff. And they that's kind of how they forced Disney to push the release date to November, almost a month and a half later on. And it also, there was some issue with The Prince of Egypt that was coming out earlier on in the year and and some, you know, kind of negotiating with that release date as as well. Let's see here. But according to Katzenberg, Katzenberg says that the idea came from a 1991 story pitch by a gentleman named Tim Johnson. And if you watch the movie Ants, you see his name story by Tim Johnson. So, I, you know, it's hard to really say which story to believe. Though, it, knowing this kind of 
helped me with my decision on what movie to choose. Because even though Ant- I remember going to see Ants, I remember going to see A Bug's Life, I remember seeing the A Bug's Life trailer in front of the movie Ants. Which nowadays, now, I mean, that wouldn't be a thing, but then, you know, that, I, I guess that was still <laughs> in the computer animated world, that was still something that people were able to do and not get in too much trouble. And I was blown away by the animation with ants. I thought when it, when it came to, at the time, when it came to realism, I thought ants was the more realistic. However, comparing the animation as to what held up better, a Bug's Life holds up better now. Ants, the movie is darker, it's grittier in tone. Uh, it's still entertaining and impressive for its time. It's violent, it has language, and as what Matt said, it's definitely geared more towards older kids and adults. Whereas A Bug's Life happens to be my favorite of the two. I can rewatch this movie over and over. The animation still holds up. I mean, there's still a little bit of... Uh, you know, a, a little bit of things that you can obviously see where Disney has improved. But then there are other things where you see that Pixar has done and it's like nothing has changed. It's crazy. It's like, wow, either either they were so happy with the way that this particular thing looked that there was no reason for them to do it any better or, or whatever. But I mean, the movie still definitely holds up, not only in story and the look, but in the humor as well. And though it is geared towards families, to me the humor is very, very witty, very, very funny, and to this day it is still one of my all-time favorite, not only Disney movies, but Pixar movies as well. Um, Yeah, yeah, so yeah, looking at my notes here, holds up the best uh, in humor and CGI between the two. So uh, yeah, so out of... uh, this uh, copycat throwdown between these two, Ants and A Bug's Life, I go with A Bug's Life. Two votes, one narrowly so, but two of them for A Bug's Life. Sorry, Ants. So I guess here we go with our final segment of the day. The day, the evening. Well, it's daytime, folks. It's daytime this time. Here we go, folks. It's the movie. <laughs> The movies! Okay, so we've got Godzilla, Neighbors, and Bad Milo. Where do you want to start there, sir? Let's go with the Bad Bad Milo. The Bad Bad Milo. All right, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Bad Milo, 2013 horror comedy film, and it stars really no one that you are overtly familiar with in the title role. However, we do have Jillian Jacobs and Patrick Warburton. They're, they play minor roles. Uh, and then, of course, one of my favorite character actors, uh, Peter Stormare. And then you have uh, Stephen Root as well. Uh, he's he's pretty darn cool. Um, so great character actors. But this Ken Marino guy, who is the star of the movie, never heard of him before this i'm not familiar with any of his work so i apologize mr marino if i should know who you are but he does Um, a good job surprisingly yes he really does i i was uh, yeah so this is a movie about a guy who is so locked down with stress that it creates a being in his colon that upon its release from his sphincter 
will kill whatever has caused him such dire, stressful pain in the most immediate effect. And his battles to control said monster from his ass. This movie is exceptionally unique and starts off fantastically. I really enjoyed the way this movie took off. It formulated itself well. Uh, it, it, it really maintained the balance of being stupid funny um, and kind of not... Uh, it was gory, not horror scary. It's just kind of gory and everything. Milo isn't exactly a treat to look at. But they also managed to kind of do that thing from Evolution, where they had the little, like, snail monster kind of thing, and he looks like a cute little mushroom head, but then he opens his mouth, and he's, like, got these teeth and snarling things that'll kill you or whatever. It kind of looks like that. So they did a good job of balancing something disgusting that could still have cute qualities. And they also did a good job of balancing this just completely ridiculous plot um, with the fact that it's supposed to be kind of a scary movie. The only problem that I really had with this movie was that once the payoff happens, which is about, eh, I want to say... Within 15 minutes of the movie, getting going, there's really nowhere left for it to go. And how they choose to deal with it keeps it funny. Um, I, and keeps it light, but doesn't really do anything to extend the movie. I gotta say, overall, this movie for me three stars it lands right at the three stars i liked it it's clever it's unique it's fun but it just really doesn't go anywhere and while i did like this movie and it does come in at three stars i do have a hard time recommending it for anybody who just really isn't into anything that's even remotely offbeat if you are however someone that does like offbeat movies and or someone who will see anything just cuz it says horror on it definitely check it out because you're going to you're going to if nothing else enjoy the gore factor and they do also parody themselves with the gore factor at every, after every attack so to speak so they so they've got that going for it as well um, the acting is good and the lines there's one line in particular uh, <laughs> Uh, Peter Stormare plays a psychiatrist who is trying to help uh, Ken Marino's character Duncan through this trying time, and uh, Duncan's just really not having it. And, you know, he's and so of course uh, Highsmith is Peter Stormare's character, and he's like, "I've come to this planet to help people," and his response, Duncan's response, is just simply, "I mean, just without batting an eye." Well, thanks for coming. <laughs> So, I mean, there are cute lines to be had and everything. I like the movie. I would have a hard time. It would be very specific recommendation only for people that I know ahead of time would enjoy this movie. But three stars nonetheless. What do you say, Tim? What do you got? Okay, the movie is not bad. It, this is it's, it's weird. I mean, this is one of those kind of difficult for me to review because what I like about the movie, I really liked. And what I didn't like about it, just really kind of bothered me 
while watching it. It, it. Like what Matt said, it's clever, it's funny, it's definitely offbeat. I mean, I should say it's funny at times. And uh, honestly, what really holds the movie together for me is the, the main guy. He plays the character straight for the most part, not over the top. I, I'm glad that Patrick Warburton didn't play the guy over the top with that uh, well, everybody knows his voice, you know, and, and usually with every character, he really milks every line. But in this character, in this role, he pull, he you know keeps it keeps it down a little bit, but still he's an asshole and sassy and you know all that all that stuff that you <laughs> you know his characters to be for the most part. However, for a movie like this to work completely, work is that it either has to be w- over the top ridiculous uh, you know everything is is over the top everything is exaggerated every like hobo with the shotgun okay though i didn't like hobo with the shotgun it was consistent with it being over the top and it wasn't trying to be anything other than an over the top gory b style type of movie you know it wasn't trying to be serious it wasn't trying to be heartfelt or any of that stuff this movie tries to have a you know a, a little a little bit of shallow uh, some shallow depth to it <laughs> and i i think this movie has to be played straight all the way through and if it's played straight all the way through i think the comedy will fall into place and what i mean with with that is that with uh, with what matt would just you know the line with the with the psychiatrist the therapist you know i i'm here to help you or save you or whatever. And his line is, I'm, I thank you for coming. You know, just stuff like that. It's If it's played straight. The psychiatrist didn't bother me that much. It was just mainly the dialogue in particular. Because you'll have some smartly, very funny hints of grossness, you know, within the dialogue. But then all of a sudden you'll have these all-out ass poop and very sexual, you know, type of humor and dialogue coming out of their mouths and it just feels forced to me like they're trying to be funny another example of where i think they went a little overboard is a funny situation you know sometimes if there's a funny situation that is funny enough you know just maybe a little for uh, for example the guy he gets an office change and he's now his office is now in the bathroom in the men's bathroom so there's toilets and urinals and all that stuff and that is funny, and I think with some reactions to the bathroom, some some physical reactions, some facial expressions or whatever, the funniness will come from that. However, there are the poop, the obvious poop jokes, the obvious shit jokes, uh, poop and shit. Uh, they're the same thing, I guess. More is one is more severe than the other, possibly. But just the obvious gross jokes that come with bathroom humor that totally takes the movie down a certain path that I don't I, I don't enjoy as much. But I mean, there's definitely people that do, and you know that's totally cool as well. Also, things just sort of happen, which then leads to what is the ending. So you have the reveal of Milo, and it happens, and there's and like what exactly what Matt said. I mean, he hit the nail on the head. Once that happens, the movie really doesn't... There's not really much room for the movie to move around because it just starts repeating things over and over again and kind of starts pulling the same type of gags, just, you know, different scenarios and all that. 
So with saying that, I'd give the movie 2.5 stars. The puppet was convincing. It was cute at times, which I, that is what they were, you know, striving for. And completely ferocious in evil, you know, when it absolutely and terrifying when it needed to be. So, uh, yeah, 2.5 for me. Right on, man. Well, where do you want to go next? We've got Godzilla and Neighbors. Let's go with Neighbors. All right, folks. Neighbors. 2014 American comedy film directed by Nicholas Stoller and starring Seth Rogen, Zac Efron, Rose Byrne, Christopher Mintz-Plasse, Dave Franco. I was very worried that this movie was going to fall in the typical comedic trap of showing all the funny parts in the trailer. And it did do exactly that. However, the funny parts about this movie are not what this movie's about. And so I'm going to give it a pass on that. This movie is the first comedy I have ever seen that has truly tried to bridge a gap. It's made for college students. It's made for people coming out of college. And it is made for people who actually are married and have kids. Because you're seeing all three of these transitions. You're seeing the party's lifestyle people who are moving from one major portion of their life into the next, and people who have established their lives. All of these things have come into play in this in this movie. And the movie, while yes, it does show all the funny parts in there, in the trailer, it doesn't give away what the movie's about. And it's about how these dynamics interact and how these... And how lives change. And I think that in doing so, it tells a really good story. The problem is, it's really not all that funny. Now, are there funny things that happen? Yes. And while it does show all the funny stuff in the trailer, there are still pretty funny things that happen outside of that. Not a whole lot. Uh, the... The definitely the final battle at the end of the movie is pretty funny. But then they're kind of you're kind of left with again, much like Bad Milo, by the end of the movie you're really not left with anywhere to go. And while and, and you're almost it's almost as if you've just sat through a ninety-seven minute sitcom where the lesson of the day is learned and then told to you just in case you didn't get it. And while all in all, that's not necessarily a bad thing, I think that what it was trying to do was take something like This Is 40 or 40-Year-Old Virgin, where there is a good message in it to be found, and then just kind of drop it in your lap instead of subtly letting you arrive to the conclusion and decide whether or not you agree with it by the end, which I think was done much better in the previous two movies versus this one. That being said, there were adults like me in the audience. There were kids, you know, 18-year-old kids in the audience, and there were some 20-somethings in the audience that were clearly... And everybody had a pretty good time with it. I liked this movie, and I liked it a little, a little bit more than than just liking it, but really not all that much. 
So at the end of the day, I'm going to give 3.25 on this one. Three and a quarter stars. Okay, first off, I don't know if I like this movie or not. Because I, like, I kind of draw a line with a, when a, a baby eating slash holding a condom... I mean, for a comedic effect, which doesn't really go anywhere. And that, that's just a little too much for me. And that's that's kind of like how I would sum up this movie. It's like, there's for, there's nothing likable about the frats. Re- there really isn't. I mean, it, it's like any douchebag asshole. I mean, there's, there's something, there's one maybe decent quality about them. But when you're put into their environment, which... Their environment is when their personality comes out, really. There, there's really nothing nothing to like. Hell, I mean, these guys practice the, the oath of bros before hoes, yet they openly screw each other's girlfriends, and that's totally okay. I mean, it's not totally okay, but I mean, it's just that whole mentality. To whereas I think if they went into a direction where it was maybe a little bit more... I, I mean, I don't. I, it's hard to say realistic in this, with this type of movie. But maybe the Judd Apatow route, like Matt was talking about, I it wouldn't have bothered me so much because I think the scenario and how things played out would have been drastically different. And also, guys like Zac Efron's character, who he starts off as you think he's a good guy, but he turns out to be an asshole. He's kind of like the the villainy type of guy, you know, whatever. And then at the end, he's like a totally cool dude, you know, yada yada. Guys like that don't exist. Trust me, they do... People like him do not exist. And this is what gets me about these movies, is that I think people watch it, and they wish people act like this, and people imitate movies, and people imitate, you know, this lifestyle, but they don't understand that these people don't exist. You know, it just got to me a little bit. I don't know, I might be just sounding like a freaking moron right now, but... That's just how I see it. And also, apparently, people think this is a good movie, and I'm talking about people that gave it 4 out of 5, 4.5 out of 5. They think that this is a good movie because amidst the the vulgarity and the baby eating a condom, it has heart. And what is their definition of heart? I don't get it. I don't get it. I mean, it didn't keep me up at night wondering, pondering this, but I just didn't. Get it. And when it comes when it came down to it, the movie just didn't do much for me. When it was legitimately witty or funny, it was funny. Even though you see the airbag exploding in the trailer, there's just something really funny about him, about Seth Rogen walking around the house with a pole poking everything, trying to look for the last couple airbags, you know, within the house, you know, so it wouldn't explode and he would be, you know, launched somewhere. And Unlike This Is The End, which going into the movie, I wasn't looking forward to it and I thought I wasn't going to like it, but then I turned, it, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes, there had vulgarity in it, and there were some really, you know, some pretty some disgusting humor, but there was some really witty and really, 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 really funny stuff to, you know, to the movie, to where you can sit back and talk about it now and, you know, have a, you know, just look back on it. With this movie, I don't think you can. And that's why I give this movie, it's, I mean, it's, it's like a two, it's like a 2.5. I, so I'm, I'm just gonna have to go with a two. Go to it, go split the difference. Two and a quarter. No, I don't. That's what I yeah, do. Yeah. 
No, I, I'm just going to do a two. You're right in the middle. You It's not quite a two. It's not quite a two and a half. You're literally in the middle. Two and a quarter. Come on, dude. Okay. It'll feel good. Okay, I'll go with I'll go with two and a quarter. <laughs> like I literally, I, I wrote down two and a quarter before, and then I scratched it out. Then I wrote down something else on top. <laughs> then I scratched it out. Then I wrote down something else, scratched it out. So okay. That's funny. Two and a quarter. That's funny. <laughs> that actually gives us the same SLS cast rating overall for both of our movies today, so far. Ooh, crazy, crazy. All right. Well, then, last but not least, we are coming into. Godzilla, the 2014 version, of course. And this one is directed by Gareth Edwards and is, for us anyway, supposed to be a reboot of the Godzilla film franchise. Now, the purists and the audiences of Japan will vehemently beg to disagree with you. But as we are going with the intent of the studio, I guess we're just going to treat this as kind of a standalone for whatever it's worth. So we've got this movie here. It uh, stars Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Ken Watanabe, Elizabeth Olsen, Juliette Binoche, and Brian Cranston. Uh, the latter two are definitely and characters, so to speak. And we have a, we have a family who works in Japan as, uh, at a nuclear facility. This nuclear facility experiences an extreme disaster that results in the loss of our young hero's mother at an early age. The film picks back up 15 years later where our boy is now an EOD man in the Army or the Navy or something like that. And, oh yeah, he's EOD in the Navy. I'm sorry, Explosive Ordnance Disposal. And uh, his dad is obsessed with the incident at the nuclear facility and everything and they have to they're it's not really clear whether or not they're estranged or if they've if they're just kind of retreated to their neutral corners so to speak but through this relationship they do uh, end up uncovering a monster that can only be dealt with by another monster and that's kind of how and then of course you get to see all the widespread devastation and everything now this movie is called Godzilla and it's really kind of a shame that they called it Godzilla because what this movie should have been called is Lieutenant Brody goes to Japan (laughs) Uh, I can hear the theme song for that I mean, I was, I'm serious though. The, uh, this movie, they they were trying. The movie was the the people when I say the movie, the people like there's okay. It seems to me that Gareth Edwards' vision for the movie and the way that he has pulled this mo- and put this movie together was to tell a story that revolves around the actions of Godzilla and his appearance. But from a narrative perspective of the people that it's happening to. Specifically, a scientist who has been intimately involved with a, a project that results in the appearance of Godzilla. Juxtaposed with this father-son dynamic that I spoke with earlier in regards to Aaron Taylor Johnson's character and Brian Cranston's character. 
Now, you then get that, again, transfixed with what's happening in San Francisco because of Brody's, uh, Lieutenant Brody, that's the, the Aaron Taylor Johnson's, his wife and kid. And them trying to get together and, and, and he's trying to reunite and, of course, all this stuff is happening. By doing that, you are definitely left with a very human element to the story. That's, for the most part, very well acted and expertly shot. The downside is, is that because of the way they have chosen to do this, they downplay, and I and I truly believe purposely so, the monster fighting action that most people associate that that causes all the cheesiness to be associated with Godzilla movies. And when you finally get your reveal and you finally get your payoffs in terms of the actual monster fighting, what everything's been building to, certain things transpire within those monster fights that you're meant to pick sides. Now, I'm trying to explain this in such a way so that I don't have to give any spoilers. Uh, go ahead, because I'm going to be spoiling, and I would think by now if... if you can listen to my review and not listen to yours. Because <laughs> so. honestly, I think if people were going to see Godzilla, they would have probably already seen it. All right, fair enough. I'm going to break my own rule then. All right, you're supposed to care about Godzilla. They have framed this and built it in such a way that you are supposed to care about Godzilla. And the problem is, is that because they spend so much time focusing on the human side of this, that when the actual payoff happens and you're getting your fight between Muto, actually the pair of Mutos, and Godzilla... And Godzilla's getting his ass handed to him, you know, but he's fighting back. Oh, he's clawing back. He's fighting back and he's doing his thing. You don't care. More to the point, you're also left inexplicably wondering where he, Godzilla gets most of his powers from because they spend what little time they do spend focusing on any of the uh, Gaijin, uh, right? Kai, is it Gai, Kai? Kai what are they Kaiju? Called? Kaiju, thank you. Yeah, it's the um, same as in uh, Pacific Rim. Right, okay, yeah. So when they're talking about the kaijus, uh, kaijus and everything, they're only focusing on the mutos, all right? So, you don't, so you're getting an idea of what the mutos can do, but all of a sudden Godzilla just appears out of nowhere. And then he's got these powers, but you're not really ever given any kind of concrete information about where or how or why, other than to say, you know, more or less he was just there. Now, there was a pretty subtle nod to Mothra in this movie uh, at the very, very beginning, which I thought was kind of cute and clever. But... Um, so who knows? Maybe we'll get to see that in the next one. Or nope. Uh, there was even actually there was even actually talk that in Japan the Japanese people got a post credit scene featuring Mothra and a whole fleet of mutos. Nope. The American audiences did not get that. Nope. Reason being is because the uh, legendary they don't own the rights to any of the uh, classic Japanese characters. So from here on out, the I mean the only. Or the only monsters that Godzilla will fight will have to be new creations. Ah, okay. Well, again, these were rumors that I had heard. That's why I didn't put it in the news. But So, at any rate, you're, you're 
you get all this stuff going on, and then Godzilla's supposed to come in and save the day. And yet, you you don't have a reason to care, because they have kept him from you for so long, and they don't let you f- see anything about what's really going on overall, because again, they're, they're trying to keep you focused on this one story with Brody and his family, and trying to bring all that stuff back. And then, to a certain extent, when the final battles occur and you're not really left to care about what happens to Godzilla even though you're supposed to Lieutenant Brody is supposed to disarm a bomb and he fails at that but still kind of saves the day I felt like that was a little bit of lazy writing and the then and so you're kind of left with this dunamay of nothing it and then off goes Godzilla into the sunset. It's kind of like, thanks for the help, but could you maybe fight in the ocean next time? I'm not quite sure it was worth all the property damage. Uh, or the hundreds of thousands of lives that hundreds of thousands of lives that were lost. Special effects wise though, this movie does a, a, just a damn fine job. Uh, Tim linked an article on Facebook. Uh, a couple of days ago, about whether or not you should see this in 3D. Uh, He agreed with the article. The article definitely said you should. I went ahead and saw it in 3D last night, and I gotta say, or I'm sorry, Sunday night, and I gotta say, fantastic 3D. And this was a film that wasn't even shot in 3D. Yeah, it was. It still looks amazing. I thought it was shot in 3D. No, it wasn't. No, it was not shot in 3D. I'm... That's that's a It's a post-production job. Because at least in the article I read, in the... That was the one of the things that the article stated that it was not oh, shot in three. I thought it said it what? Okay. Oh. No. They, yeah, but they said that they uh, that the director and the cinematographer took great pains to set the shots so that when the conversion happened, oh. it would be seamless. Okay. Okay. Oh. But uh, at any rate, so definitely worth checking out. I mean, if you're a big action fan, probably you've already seen this movie anyway. This movie's done well over a hundred million dollars. It's only been out for five days. Um, you're probably among the people who've already seen this movie, so hopefully, you know, the spoiler alert, whatever. But I'm really left wondering what to say about this movie as a whole. There are lots of good things about the movie in terms of how it was shot, lots of technical things. I also appreciated the approach that they took in trying to make this, in trying to take this take a franchise that has been notoriously and in some cases infamously and maybe rightly so associated with parody and make it something that's that is worthwhile and worth you spending your money on and something that you'll want to see going forward i just think that they accidentally tipped the balance in favor of the human characters instead of godzilla to the detriment of you caring about what happened the only other thing I want to say on this is that when they do finally pull the reveal of Godzilla, I thought they did a fantastic job. I looked at that face, and I swear to God, it looked like it just like it was straight out of the original movies. Um, was he fatter than the rest of the in, than the other? Yes, but not necessarily in a bad way. I just think that they were trying to make him. They were trying to just make it original. And I don't think that they necessarily did a bad thing in that regard. <sighs> I really don't know where I land on this movie. I'm going to go ahead and say... Uh, 
three and a half stars. I'll give it three and a half stars. Yeah, I I, I can feel good about that. <laughs> I liked the movie. I, I liked the movie, and I liked it more than a little, and uh, I liked it quite a bit. Um, but even with the even with what I think are legitimate concerns, uh, overall still worth seeing. So three and a half stars for me. Finish it up, Tim. Bring us home. Godzilla, or Godzilla, how Ken Watanabe says it, very sternly, you know, very, like, very mysterious, and as if he's been practicing how to say that over and over again. Okay, first off, I thought they killed off the film's only interesting human character, and that being Heisenberg. I thought the female characters were wasted. There were a lot of throwaway characters. Uh, Most of them were the female characters, like I said. You had... Oh, I forget the actress's name who was in Blue Jasmine. She played the other analyst, scientist lady. And then you had Caitlin Olsen. She's a fantastic actress. Love her to death. She's gorgeous, gorgeous woman. Both of those women have acting chops, but I believe they were kind of screwed over for the sake of the, uh, the main guy, or who turned out to be the main guy, Brody. And then you have all the side characters. You have Ken Watanabe, and you have... Uh, the other general, which I forget that actor's name. And all these guys, they all have the cheesy, corny lines that I guess you would associate with Godzilla. And I'm hoping that maybe it'll translate better for the foreign audience. So maybe when they see it, they think it's very hokey, but yet it adds to the experience. Because all in all, when you're watching the movie, it feels like the Japanese movie in a way. Because not only is just the only downside of that is that you have the great-looking monsters. I mean, God, Godzilla looked fantastic. It just felt a little too cheesy when I don't think it was trying to be cheesy. I, I thought this movie was so much on a grand scale. You know, there's so much big stuff happening and happening all around the world that. There was no room for the legitimate, the legit character stuff to really come out and flourish. A lot of cheeseball stuff, not only in the lines, but in the reactions and the serious talking. And it seemed like they did those reactions and they did all the serious talking for the sake of there being dramatic pauses, dramatic reactions, and serious talking. You know, it's like they were, they were trying to convey tension or they're they're trying to convey the suspense and it was just so obvious and it, and it took me out of the movie quite a bit there were i was laughing at the movie quite a bit which might surprise a lot of people by the, the rating i give it um the final 25 minutes of the movie made the movie for me i thought the computer generated effects were fantastic the 3d was phenomenal uh, I love the look of the the, the look of the actions uh, of the action sequences. How the, how the last final battle played out. Uh, I love the reveal. And there, other than Godzilla being its own reveal, there is a particular attribute of Godzilla that is a fantastic reveal. And it might have something to do with how he kills the villain or how he does not. Well, he kills the villain. We all know that during the battle. And at the, I got freaking chills, man. I got chills, and it was electrifying. And I also appreciated the lack of advertisements in this movie, unlike the Roland Emmerich version, where it was basically a commercial for Taco Bell and Pepsi and all that groovy stuff. I give this movie four stars. Four-star movie. Though I laughed at the movie due to, again, the human characters and 
the some of the the scripted dialogue the monsters how that stuff plays out i love the opening of the movie it was awesome i liked the story and i i just liked how this the monster how godzilla himself worked and what they did with him i thought that was flawless so again four stars for me well there you go so not so bad not so bad and i guess that will bring us to the end of another wonderful segment of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be X-Men, Days of Future Past, Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing, and You Kill Me. We're going to bring back Three Squared next week as well, with a very special Three Squared. We are actually not even going to have a Three Squared. We're going to have a discussions segment. That's what we're going to do. We're going to have a discussion segment we're going to bring back because it's a special episode next episode. Next episode is episode 77. I happen to have been born in 1977. So we're going to cover the Best Picture nominees from 1977. This comes uh, to us from the Oscars anniversary, the 50th anniversary, which was back in 1978. So all the movies were from 1977. The Best Picture nominees that year were Annie Hall, The Goodbye Girl, Julia, Star Wars, and The Turning Point. Annie Hall was the winner, but Tim and I are going to discuss which movies we thought were the best of those and whether or not Annie Hall should have been the winner. And that's going to be our special episode 77 segment of Discussions with Matt and Tim. And I guess that's it, right? Now we're down to the spiel officially? Yes, sir. Spiel on. All right. Well, the music, as always, that you've been listening to has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, well, of course, we're the SLS Cast, and you can check us out at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the SLSCast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can even go to Facebook and find us there. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes and even favorite us on Stitcher. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Ellen DeGeneres, I get to say this. Most comedy is based on getting a laugh at somebody else's expense, and I find that's just a form of bullying in a major way. So I want to be an example that you can be funny and kind and make people laugh without hurting somebody's feelings. Take care, guys. Talk to you next week. So, um... Okay, so... Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.